X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Thursday, March 4th. Today, back in the day in 1917, Jeanette Rankin of Montana becomes the first female member of the United States House of Representatives. And today, back in the day on March 4th, 1933, Frances Perkins was the first woman to serve in the U.S. Cabinet. Frances Perkins became a Secretary of Labor, and again, she was the first woman appointed to the U.S. Cabinet. Today, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Joanne Jewell, Executive Editor of Street Roots. X-Ray. But first up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. There are now four candidates running to fill Representative Diego Hernandez's seat. Representative Hernandez will resign effective March 15th after months of harassment allegations. Here's a list of candidates as reported by OPB. Robin Castro, a 2020 Portland City Council candidate. Adrian Anghouse, president of the Oregon Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals. Kale Turn, a human services case manager. And Andrea Valderrama a policy director for the ACLU of Oregon. Valderrama filed a restraining order against Hernandez last year and ran for city council in 2018. A precinct committee will now elect Hernandez's replacement to be announced on March 15th. Democratic Party Chair Casey Hansen said in a press statement, quote, the Oregon legislature is just over one month into a critical five-month-long legislative session and is working hard to respond to the many crises facing our state. It is important that we are ready to promptly fill a legislative vacancy so that the people of House District 47 are represented in the Oregon House throughout this session. Now it's your daily dose of data. On Tuesday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 269 new coronavirus cases, bringing the state total to 156,037. 13 additional deaths were reported. Now 2,225 Oregonians have died from the virus. Currently 149 COVID-19 patients are hospitalized. On Tuesday, the first West Coast case of the Brazilian coronavirus variant was found in Douglas County. Also known as P1, the variant is known to be more transmissible and can reinfect those who have immunity from contracting the original virus. The Douglas County resident who contracted P1 did travel Prior to testing positive, as we reported yesterday, only 10 cases have been found in the United States. It is unclear, however, what would lead a positive case to be tested as any of the known variants. Oregon legislators are pushing for a statewide $17 an hour minimum wage. Oregon's minimum wage is currently at $11.50 in some areas, but $13.25 in Portland. House Bill 3351 would eliminate regional differences in wages, which corresponded to a lower cost of living in regional areas. The bill has five co-sponsors, but Democrats have not listed it as one of their priorities. This comes at a time when debates around federal minimum wage are occurring. Federal minimum wage is currently at $7.25, and Democrats are pushing to raise that to $15 by 2025. The current living wage in the United States is $16.54 an hour. Legislation that could end qualified immunity was introduced to the House of Representatives by Representative Earl Blumenauer. Along with Representative Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, Blumenauer reintroduced the bill to restore accountability in law enforcement. 
known as the Ending Qualified Immunity Act, it would write into law that immunity is not grounds for defense of violating the law. The Civil Rights Act of 1871 granted individuals the right to sue officials who violate their rights. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court adopted the Good Faith and Probable Cause Defense, which aided officers in avoiding liability. Blumenauer addressed his colleagues, stating, quote, from Oregon to Massachusetts, we have repeatedly seen our country's policing system and then the justice system fail people of color. The legislation is backed by many organizations like the NAACP, the National Black Justice Coalition, and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. 31 of 90 federal cases against protesters have been dismissed. The charges from the recent summer's Black Lives Matter protests came as U.S. attorneys vowed to end the nightly demonstrations. Over half of the charges dropped were dismissed with prejudice, meaning the case will never be brought back to court. Former Oregon U.S. Attorney General Billy J. Williams told KGW, quote, each case was analyzed for the evidence that we had at the time. Careful decisions were made on whether or not someone should be charged based on the evidence. Those who have not had their cases dismissed are often seeing their trials delayed, primarily due to the pandemic. It is unclear if a Biden-appointed attorney general will dismiss any more cases. And finally, some good news. The story of the Black Panther Party is being retold in the form of a graphic novel, thanks to Portland writer and historian David F. Walker. The Black Panther Party, a graphic novel history, is one of the latest releases from Penguin Random House Publishers. The book contextualizes the ideological framework for the Black Panther Party through the history of slavery, Jim Crow, and the Civil Rights Movement. It also highlights the stories of the party's leaders, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, as well as the systematic dissembling via Cointelpro. Cointelpro is the abbreviation derived from counterintelligence program. Walker told OPB that he feels his role is to share the history of the Black Panther Party as it often goes untaught in schools. Quote, if I have a role in any capacity, it's that I don't think any school kid in this country should not know who Fred Hampton is. I don't think any school kid should not know what the Black Panther Party stood for. I think every kid who's receiving free breakfast in schools needs to know where the free breakfast program started. The Black Panther Party, a graphic novel history written by David F. Walker and illustrated by Marcus Kwame Anderson, is available now. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, it's executive editor of Street Roots, Joanne Jewell. A note to listeners, we will be speaking sometimes graphically about violent acts as we are joined with Joanne Zuhl, Executive Director of Street Roots. Hi, Joanne. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. morning. You're here with uh, Morgan Jones and Ambush. Um, Thank you for joining us. Of course. Happy to be here. This piece on trauma in prison is tied to the launch of a new Street Roots podcast. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Right. Well, we are, we have launched. Um, it just came out this weekend, a new podcast, and that features our managing editor, Emily Green, who has uh, been covering criminal justice issues for quite a while now. And she has partnered up with Joshua Wright, uh, who has a podcast called The Exiled Voice. And Joshua's specialty um, is working with and talking with and bringing the stories of people who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated 
he himself has experienced incarceration, and so that's uh, you know a passion of his to bring those voices forward. So in this partnership, we're going to be presenting uh, the the podcast is called Walled In, and it will be available on our website. And uh, it's going to come out probably about four times a year right now, and it'll be featuring both uh, the work of Joshua to talk with people who are or have been imprisoned, and then Emily doing interviews with uh, experts on particular issues. And uh, the inaugural podcast, which, like I said, is, is out now, is an interview with Megan Novinsky, Novisky, excuse me, and she uh, is a she teaches criminology at Cleveland State University. And uh, Novisky, along with Robert Peralta, and he is a criminology professor at the University of Akron, Ohio. They have co-authored a study that examines the lasting effects that witnessing violence has on former state prisoners in Ohio. And they spoke with 30 former prisoners, and all of them had either directly experienced violence or had witnessed it at some point during their incarceration. Uh, This study just came out last year. It's titled Gladiator School, Returning Citizens' Experiences with Secondary Violence Exposure in Prison. Uh, it's a lengthy, lengthy title, but it it really uh, is important information to better understand that uh, so much goes on behind bars that it's far beyond the intended sentences that are put upon people. Yes, uh, I was reading the article by Emily in Street Root, and mm-hmm. my goodness, uh, that. That idea that I, I don't even like to say it this way, that like simply witnessing violence um, and violent acts is traumatizing because um, I don't think there's anything simple about that. Uh, mm-hmm. What what kind of effects do these traumas have on incarcerated people? Well, I think uh, what you know, with what society knows about what witnessing violence can do, it, you just think of that compounded behind bars because of the prevalence of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the researchers Novisky and Peralta really found that there was an incredible amount of emotional and psychological strain put on uh, the people who were incarcerated. I mean, these are these are really um, disturbing stories of just day to day life. And again, this is not. This was not part of their sentence. This is trauma that is just simply the environment of prison these days. Uh, prisoners talked about seeing common, simple objects weaponized. Um, mm. So, like padlocks, um, just items uh, around them in daily life that you would also see outside of prison, but now uh, have this trauma attached to them. People spoke of being stabbed, stabbed of uh, broken bones, uh, being sex trafficked while in prison. Mm. Uh, just even if they, if an individual wasn't directly involved in it, just witnessing um, the violence, the blood, uh, having to clean up um, the evidence of a, of a situation of violence to clean up the blood uh, is is just incredibly trying. You can't even imagine what that uh, would be like, and not just it, perhaps in an isolated case, but if you are in prison for decades, uh, how much mm. of that you would see. So true. I mean, the, it really, for me, was an eye-opening thing of, uh, and and like you just said, the this isn't a part of the sentence. This isn't a part of your rehabilitation. Right. This isn't exactly. uh, supposed to be even a part of your punishment, right? Um, so, and that's 
that's one of the things that Novisky really points out that, you know, she says that in no other context would it be acceptable for people to be violently victimized or exposed to these kinds of violent circumstances, but we allow it to happen in prison. And, you know, her argument is certainly that, you know, being convicted of a crime should not mean that society has a free pass to traumatize someone, mm. you know, week after week, day after day. And, you know, I think the implications that she's, she's pointing out in this interview is that, you know, we, we have expectations of what, you know, a sentence is supposed to do. It's punitive, and it's, you know, we, we hope that a person emerges from prison if they are to emerge from prison, you know, uh, rejecting criminal life and perhaps seeing how they can become a, a productive member of, uh, of the community. But that these kind of traumas actually foster more criminal behavior. Um, so it's pretty fascinating how we're, we perhaps are causing more problems than, than this so-called solution of incarceration was intended to address. This is making me think about um, the result of incarceration, much like the result of being uh, a soldier in mm. a war-torn area. Yeah. I'm, you know, the the idea that we um, our expectation is that you just come back and integrate, and you you know right. become a productive member of society in whatever mm-hmm. form that takes. But it's productive, and and like you said, you will reject the criminality now. And in fact, it's um, you are likely learning many more uh, criminal, uh, not ways, but, you know, um, and then the violence on top of it. And that's so much trauma. Um, I, I think I understand why it's important to emphasize those witnessing violence. Um, but can you give us something, uh, just give us the importance of when we're thinking about it in the carceral system? Well, you know, as as I was saying, I think you have to um, you have to pause and recognize if this is what our carceral system does. If our carceral system is not just what you know a a, 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 a rudimentary understanding of it that it okay, it's a place where bad people go. It's a place to remove them from society. It's mm-hmm. a place to maybe hopefully re- rehabilitate people. Keep you know. Public safety is job number one, supposedly, right? But if we, the more we understand about, about what this carceral system does and the impacts it has, not just on the people who are behind the bars, but mm. the community at large, uh, co- communities, uh, particularly communities of color and how things are disproportionately uh, meted out and, and how, the, how much damage is caused by this, right? thinking about how much this trauma, what this does to people and human beings that we expect to be recovered by prison or uh, rehabilitated by prison, if we understand, in fact, that's that's actually not happening and we're causing, again, more problems uh, and more damages than what we think um, we're doing to solve the problem of public safety, then we have to rethink how we're doing prisons, right? We have to think about um, lengths of sentences, uh, who is uh, receiving sentences, how mm-hmm. incarceration of, is applied, whether incarceration at all is a solution. Right. So a lot of those considerations go into, you know, or are drawn out of studies like these that, you know, we this is not the first study to show 
problems of our carceral system, right? We know that there are myriad problems with it, and, you know, are, are all those problems worth it for what we think we're getting out of it? Right, right. For anyone just tuning in, this is Morgan in Ambush. We are speaking with Joanne Zuhl of Street Roots. Joanne, that just made me think of, are there any studies uh, on violence and the effects of witnessing violence uh, with the correctional officers? Um, I have to say, I can't, I can't say off the top of my head. I would imagine that there are, um, and I, I would imagine that there might be even more for the officers than there are for the actual mm. uh, prisoners, to be honest with you, just uh, understanding biases over the decades. But, Certainly. Uh, you know, I, I think violence is violence, right? And that happens, that's whether you are someone walking down the street and you see a, a terrible violent action. Um, or if you see it behind bars, and you know one, however, is state um, sanctioned in a sense, right. and the other one is just incidental. So, you know, where does the responsibility lie? Oh, that, yeah, that is. Uh, you're going to put me down a rabbit hole today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get out of here, um, can you tell us about any restorative justice programs that work to break this cycle of violence? I don't have a list in front of me to be honest with you there are uh, organizations that you can seek out if you feel like you're not if you have someone who is behind bars um, that you want to that you want that address mm. um, I, I can't I, I don't know names at the top of my head but um, there are organizations out there um, but there are programs that people uh, can find there are. There okay. are not many, and I'm sure they're busy, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, but I, it's worth it. I mean, the, the point, the larger point is that if you do feel like there is there are problems, register that. You know, the complaint system behind in, in the criminal justice system or in the incarceral system um, can be, you know, challenging, yeah. to say the least. So if you have people on the outside who can uh, pursue avenues, um, by all means. Before we go, can you tease some of the other stories in the paper? Sure. Our cover story is uh, is really interesting. Of course, a lot of people are going to be thinking about going back to work as uh, as the light at the end of the tunnel starts to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have a report about how uh, businesses, employers in this in Portland, have incentivized non car forms of transportation and commuting. Uh, forming transportation demand management teams that, um, you know, incentivize either bikes or public transit or uh, lifts in case of emergency, carpool arrangements, uh, bike valets, um, subsidized transit, you know, pay um, mm-hmm. tickets. It's pretty interesting. OHSU is one of the leaders on this. Uh, the Port of Portland, uh, Nike, Adidas, uh, Portland Medical Center have all really been focused on how they can encourage their employees um, to come to work without driving. So it's a pretty interesting report on this. And we offer Chris May, the author of the story, offers uh, tips and suggestions for talking to your own employer about incentivizing alternative ways to commute. Nice. We also have a conversation with Winsley Campos, who last month became the youngest female legislator in Oregon history. She represents the House District 28 in Aloha. She's also one of the few legislators of color 
and has uh, a career working with people experiencing homelessness. So a lot of people are looking to her to see her uh, impact on the legislator this session. Very exciting. Absolutely amazing. Sounds like a great addition. It Thank is. you so much for joining us today, Joanne. Thank you. Happy to be here. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks to Joanne for joining the local. Thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll be taking a break tomorrow, but we'll see you again on Monday. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. X-Ray.